The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos, chapter 1. And while you're turning there, um, I have failed twice already, and we haven't even started the message. Failure number one is I am fully aware I'm wearing the same shirt that I taught in last week. My wife is sick, and she usually catches things like that. <clears throat> so uh, better look next time. And it would have been a great shirt for yesterday. You know what I mean? Irish rugby, I'm a mess. Second thing is I promised you famous Amos cookies. And uh, no, no cookies. So, uh, so next week, if I don't... <laughs> Am I really going to say this? I am. All right. Next week, if you don't get famous Amos cookies when you walk in the door, then we're going to do worship, and then we're all going to Dairy Queen, and we're having an outing as a church at Dairy Queen, and we'll do the message right there. Right? Sam, aren't you teaching next week? Yeah. That'd be weird if I on purpose forgot famous Amos cookies, wouldn't it? Could happen. Could happen. Anyway, we will do that. We will do that. So, uh... Anyway, let's uh, get right at it. Amos chapter 1. And we're going to go from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. You know how um, there's certain phrases or certain things maybe our children or or others might do that, that we know as soon as we hear it, it's a setup. Or, or at least we know there's something coming on the other end. Um, uh, uh, one of them might be, for example, if anyone ever says to you, I'm not racist, but you know what's coming next, right? Something horribly racist is about to come out of that person's mouth. Or I'm not sexist, but then you're going to hear those sorts of comments. Um, if your children come to you and they're like, Dad, I love you. You know that little tone that you know there's something coming on the back end of that? Like there's something that they want? Um, or... Dad, you're such a great dad. You know, those kinds of things, those are setups. The book of Amos starts off with a little bit of an intentional setup. Um, And it's a pretty significant one that is going to catch the northern kingdom of Israel um, right by the throat in a lot of ways. It's going to set them up kind of in the way Jesus used to often do a lot of times when people would say, I've kept all the law. Or when when he was saying that you have all heard that don't commit murder. And everybody in his audience would have been like, that's right, I've never committed murder. And then he says, but if you've had anger in your heart. Well, Amos chapter 1 is a setup. I'm in a tunnel now. Amos chapter 1 is a setup. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be starting through this. It's going to go through, um, it's referred to in many places as the oracles of Amos, the oracles against Israel's enemies. And so we're going to see these in just a minute. Last week, we spent some time, if you weren't with us, really just looking at the background of Amos. Who was Amos, this farmer from Tekoa, or excuse me, shepherd from Tekoa? Um, this guy who was really remarkable for not being very remarkable at all um, until God put a message within him and charged him to come and carry it. We talked about prophets, um, whether that be prophecies that are spoken or prophets, those who deliver them. It does not necessarily mean forthtelling, as in, or excuse me, foretelling, as in telling the future. It always, though, means forthtelling. A prophet's job was to speak God's word. Now, if God's word happened to be something that was predicting the future, which does happen, in fact, in these cases tonight we will see some, um, then, then that would be that sort of foretelling. But the primary role of a prophet was to speak God's word, to foretell whatever it is that God speaks. And even to this day, um, you can operate in the realm, if you will, of prophecy, not because you're telling the future like some sort of, you know, um, a palm reader or something like that, but when you are speaking God's word, that's what that means, to be a prophet for God. So we spent some time talking about that. We also talked about the cultural relevance that the book of Amos has for us today. That this is not just some book written to some people so many thousand years ago, and we're just learning a history lesson, but actually the cultural environment at the time was surprisingly similar to the world that we live in today. Um, Israel was at a high point of um, just uh, 
just, it was just doing well. I mean, there was, profits were through the roof. They were, they were financially well off. They thought they were safe. The Assyrians had been a, um, really oppressing Israel for many, many years, but, but the Assyrians actually went on to take on different battles in different places and really sort of eased up on Israel and all but disappeared. And Israel wrongly believed that the Assyrians had kind of gone to sleep, and they looked at their own wealth, their own prosperity as a sign that God's blessing was on them. They said, see, our enemies are gone, we're enjoying prosperity, we're enjoying peace, we're enjoying all these things, and all of this is a sign that God is pleased with us. Um, Unfortunately for them, the book of Amos or the prophecies of the prophet Amos are going to show that God is very much not pleased with what's going on. Israel may be involved in all sorts of religious activity, but it's just that. It's just religious activity, ceremonies, even ceremonies done in places and in ways that God would consider an abomination. But, but they would go through all the sacrificial systems. They would go through all the religious activity that they were supposed to do according to the Old Testament law, not because they had a heart for God or any desire at all to actually worship God. They did it because they thought that was the secret to their prosperity. And so they would just keep going through the motions as if God was some sort of genie in a bottle. And as long as they would keep him happy, everything would be okay. But in the meantime, they were um, actually participating in tremendous atrocities against the poor. There was horrible things going on, things that were absolutely contrary to everything that God had raised them as a people up to be in the first place. And so while they went along in this sort of daydream, thinking that God was pleased with them all along, never having any sort of heart or any relationship with him, judgment was coming. And as we talked about, God's attributes, so many of God's attributes are limitless. God's love is never ending. God's mercies are new every morning. All of these things, God's wisdom, God's power, all these things. But there's one for sure that does have a limit, and that's God's patience. And God's patience does wear out. It does run out at a certain time. And so this is the reality of the book of Amos. The book of Amos is the story that God has had enough. And it's relevant to us in the church or even us as a nation. As we're going to look at today, God cares about nations and what they do. So we would do well to heed the words of the prophet Amos as if he were standing here speaking these words to us today. So we're in the book of Amos, so uh, one question that might come up, how did Amos deliver this message? He's a prophet, but, but not by origin, not by background. His family wasn't prophets, none of those guys. He was just a shepherd, just one of the common shepherds in a place called Tekoa, which is still famous to this day um, for just supporting large herds of sheep. It's not far from Bethlehem, and um, so he would be there, and, and, and This message is given him, and now he becomes a prophet when he carries this message from Judah, where he lives, into the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Israel has gone through a division. There's the northern kingdom of Israel now, and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. They're essentially two separate states, and there's a lot of animosity between them. There's even times when people from the northern kingdom of Israel have come and raided Judah. So there's a lot of bad blood between them. This is not a unified nation. And so... This prophet, or shepherd, I should say, is given a word from God to carry into the northern kingdom on God's behalf. So how did he do that? There's a passage in 2 Peter 2, or excuse me, 2 Peter 1, verse 21, that says this. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No prophecy, Peter says, was ever produced by the will of man. So, so these words aren't something that Amos is saying, I've had enough of this, and so I'm going to write a letter. And I'm going to carry a message. And I'm going to go into northern, and that's not the case. This was not originated by the will of man. This was inspired by God. But that verse in, first, in 2 Peter 1.21 goes on to say, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that phrase, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, in many cases has, has sort of been misunderstood. And a lot of people picture, whether it be the writers of the books of the Bible or prophets like Amos, to, as if they're just sort of going along on their own. They're not starting anything of their own will. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just rushes upon them and they go into some sort of like chant or, or trance or something like that. They have no more control of themselves anymore and they just sort of begin to either speak or they're just sort of carried along. And that's how some people often would think that that's what was written. But that's just not the case. It, it is inspired by God. 
This message is given and birthed by God and the Holy Spirit, but, but this message is written through a specific man at a specific time for a specific season and a specific purpose. So it's been said before, when God wanted to write a letter to the Galatians because he was so fed up with what was going on in the churches in Galatia, he wanted to write a letter that got their attention and dealt with it in a severe way, so he used a man like Paul. Because Paul was uniquely designed and equipped to be the, the carrier, if you will, of the message that God put in him. And the same would be true for all of the different writers of the Bible. Whatever book it might be, uh, the Bible is this unique blend of man and the Spirit of God that's come together. And those of you that were with us when uh, Professor Todd Miles was down a couple of weeks ago for that, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but on Friday night he talked about this union, this, that the Bible is the work of man and the work of God. And I don't know about you, but does that not make you a little bit nervous when you start thinking about that a little bit? Like, we don't really know. The, the Bible's all God. It's not man at all. And yet God did use human vehicles to write these things. He, he did use human personalities and human skills. When he wanted to write the book of Luke, he got a historian and a doctor and an educated man. When he wanted to write books to the Israelites, he, he used people like Peter to write them when he wanted to write books about what it really means to love one another and love God, then he went to the apostle of love, and John writes those. There is a human element to this, but the words are absolutely 100% divinely inspired. And I, I don't know about you, but even when he was talking about that, it, there's something in us, at least for me, that just is like, no, we don't want to have any sort of human involvement whatsoever. We would rather it be Amos coming into some sort of trance and just speaking God's word, because if there's any human element, it makes it fearful. But then when he talked about that night, the fact that who was Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus was the word become what? Flesh. And he was what? Fully man and fully God, uniquely come together in a miraculous way that we can't possibly ever fathom or understand, and that the word became flesh in Christ. So in Amos, we don't have a guy that just went into some sort of trance but just because we talked about last week that he was this simple shepherd, don't mistake him to be a fool. He's a wise man. So, so how has this happened? Well, all of the events that we're going to be talking about are events that he would have been aware about, that all the people would have been aware of. This is dealing with the enemies of Israel over centuries, some of them, who are all around the area where he lived. In fact, it's said that if you map out not just the places that we're going to be talking about tonight, but the order in which they're presented, it makes this sort of crisscross, almost star, that lands right on top of the nation of Israel. They would have been completely aware of what's going on in all the regions around him. And so along as they're going through, as this guy's in a shepherd, maybe just like David when he's out in the fields, he's enjoying this real and genuine relationship with God where the Holy Spirit is teaching him and putting words within his heart. We see that with David even in the Psalms. But then there comes a time when God says, you're not doing this anymore. I have a job for you. You're going to go. And Amos incredibly obediently, this humble shepherd comes and speaks. We're going to see these. These are powerful and harsh words, not just to people, but to nations he's speaking these things. And as we know, these are clearly the word of God because the word of God says that if someone was to ever speak a prophecy and it not come true, then that guy clearly was not a prophet from God and he's to be what? Stoned. Well, that's not the case. Everything here, historically, you can look these things up. God's word held true in all of them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start looking at these. Now, there's a pattern to them. These oracles, the six oracles against Israel's enemies is what they're referred to. And there's this pattern to them, this flow to them. They all start out, verse 3, thus says, not Amos, but thus says what? The Lord. Verse 6, thus says the Lord. Verse 9, thus says the Lord. So those are, that's a, this is an, a prophet acting as a prophet. He's speaking not his own words from his own will, but he's speaking what God has called him and birthed within him to speak. And so as we go through these, it's broken up. It's very easy to see how these lay out. So we're just going to dive in. We're going to look at each one of the oracles, who it is that's being spoken about, why this, this oracle is being spoken against them. And then at the end, we're going to sort of summarize what we can learn and look forward into next week to how this actually is, as I said before. This is a setup. Because as they're reading this, Israel would be like, yeah, 
I like this Amos prophet guy. All these other prophets that always come to us, they're jerks. They're always talking about, you're going to die, and this place is going to you know where, and all these sort of things. There's destruction and judgment coming. But this guy's like, hey, those guys are going down. Those guys are going down. And they would have loved this. Like, it would have been cheers. And that's the setup. So let's dive right in. Oracle number one, it begins, let's start actually in verse one. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, and here's oracle number one begins, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people from Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. So oracle number one is against the nation of Syria, specifically the capital Damascus. This, the Damascus and Syria has always sort of been a problem for the people of Israel as they still are to this day. When we were in Israel in May, um, our tour guide was young, inexperienced, and easily talked into doing extra stuff. And so while we were there, we were in, uh, where were we? Where were, we were in Tel Dan, right? We were in Tel Dan, which is near the northern border, and they drove us up to the border of Syria on this hillside where they were overlooking cities where the very war is going on to this day. There was like soldiers going around and armored vehicles, and it was just like creepy and cool all at the same time to see what was going on. The thing that's amazing, though, that if you've ever been to Israel that you'll know right away, Israel's small. I mean, small. And their enemy is not just near them, but it's like it's right there. And we forget that, being in America, being so separated from so many of our enemies. But the, the best comparison I could give you, for, for us, it would be like Medford and, and Central Point is Israel, and White City is Syria. Like, it's that close. And so the rockets that get lobbed over the border that you hear about in the news all the time, that is a very common occurrence because, I mean, it's like a pitching wedge shot from, from some of these places into actual populated places in Israel. And everywhere you go in Israel, whether it's Jerusalem or Tel Dan or any of those areas, there's always old buildings that you can find that are just littered with bullet holes everywhere. I mean, it's just part of their history, whether it's from the wars with Egypt and all these things. It's just, this is who Israel is. So when we talk about these nations that are around them, this would have been very, very, very well-known issues for a man like Amos. Because we're not talking about a guy back in the day not knowing what's going on on the other side of the world because they don't have the internet. I mean, think almost neighborhood to neighborhood is a better understanding than nation to nation the way that we think of things now, okay? So, and there's something else that I want you to understand before we even go to regarding Damascus, and this is actually going to be regarding all of them. If you look in verse 3, thus says the Lord, it says, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now that does not mean that like God was writing the message, the Holy Spirit was like, there's three of them, and then, hey, we just heard about something else. Okay, nope, now there's four of them. It, it's not like that. It's not like one got forgotten and one got added on. This is a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's the literature here's way of saying these are ongoing, continual, unending. They just keep counting. There's three reasons. There's four reasons. There's five reasons. There are a million reasons why judgment is coming to this land. That's the idea behind this. Okay, so it's not literal. It's poetic, if you will, in language to say their offenses are innumerable. That's what this means. Okay, so the people of Damascus here, what is it that they've done? It says, they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now, most commentators, if not all commentators, believe this needs to be taken literally, that this isn't just figurative language. But what it appears to have happened here is that the people of Syria, or Damascus specifically, have come in and attacked Gilead. 
They defeated Gilead. They had won this battle, and they have the defeated armies or soldiers or people here of this area of Gilead. And what they did after that was to line them up literally in a field, and they take these things that are called threshing sleds, the bottom of which have these long steel or iron bars as well as spikes that are used to crush the grain and separate the wheat from the chaff. They're heavy, they're big, and what they've done is literally drive these things back and forth over people that they had already defeated in war and were held as captive. So this is a horribly barbaric, violent, brutal thing that's being done. And so what's God saying to them? He says beginning, we saw in verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion. So this is the flow for each of these oracles. It's God's way of saying, I've seen it, I have put up with you long enough, but time is up. I've had enough of this. This is what's going on here. So they're doing this to already conquered enemies. Now, with each one of these, what I want to do is just sort of tag on one little application thing that we can think through. Because again, this isn't just a letter written to people centuries ago. This is written to us as well. This is applicable to us as well and, and to really every area of our lives. Our, our, even our cultural climate is so similar to what was going on at this time. So in this one right here, what's the deal? Why is this so upsetting to God? Well, the thing you're doing, if you're taking notes, and I'm sure all of you are, write this down. People that are made in the image of God are never to be treated as things. People that are made in the image of God are never to be treated as things, no matter who they are, no matter what they are. So, so whether it be the woman working at the strip club as we speak in downtown Medford, who's being treated right now by men in that bar as a thing, or whether it be images of pornography on TV, or whether it be trafficking, or as simple as just looking at people as a means to get your own in, God has created everyone in the image of God. And if you remember, the the whole reason that human government was first instituted, going all the way back to the days of Moses, was to protect and preserve the image of God in man. He says, if someone takes away the life of someone that I have created in my image, then I will require from them theirs. And it's the first institute of human government. We see from the very beginning, God places a great deal of value on people because they are, all of them, followers of Jesus or not, they are all made in the image of God. And God desires that they not be treated as things. That's number one. Oracle number two picks up in verse six. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, Let's try that one more time. For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish." Thus says the Lord. Oracle number two is against Gaza. Um, if, if you want to be able to think of it in terms of maybe Bible characters or people groups that you're a little more familiar with, think Philistines. Oracle number two is against the Philistines. And the issue with the Philistines is that they are conducting their businesses with total disregard for humans whatsoever. In fact, whenever possible, using humans for the increase of their own business, profits, wealth, prosperity. In particular, we see here that they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. So they were apparently involved in slavery, and I don't mean biblical slavery. If you've ever done a study to understand, because that's one of the critics against the Bible, right, that it endorses slavery. Um, That's not true. Um, Yes, the Bible talks about slavery. Yes, the Bible talks about how to treat your slaves. But in every case when the Bible is endorsing or putting boundaries around the institute of slavery, it's not slavery the way we think of slavery, where someone's being sold off and beaten and abused. It is, you might think, servants, 
And even in that, there are boundaries placed around it to make absolutely sure that that person's not taken advantage of. And actually, biblically, they were supposed to be set free after a certain amount of time anyway. So any of the servitude, if you would call it that, that was to take place that was biblically justified had time limits and all sorts of boundaries around it. Now, of course, people are sinful, and those things never really seem to take place. So slavery existed. But don't buy into the, to the lie that the Bible um, somehow supported slavery. Interestingly enough, the book of Amos is maybe one of the most quoted books, or was the, one of the most quoted books during the civil rights movement in America. Um, when people like Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, John Perkins especially, who I love, some of these men were writing and speaking and teaching against segregation and against some of the social injustices that were going on during that time. One of the most famous verses that they read is from uh, Amos, I want to say it's chapter 4, I'm having a little bit of a, a brain forget thing here. Um, but it's the, the passage so famous, it says, let justice roll down like rivers. That was like a battle cry during the civil rights movement. Uh, so the idea that the Bible supports slavery is not true. In fact, the Bible has been used to end and push against slavery, and nothing has stood up for the civil rights of other people more than the scriptures have throughout history. So don't let people tell you that. It's just not true. But here, the people of Gaza, or the Philistines, were using the oppression of people for a means of gaining wealth and specifically selling people into slavery. Not just selling people, but look in verse 6. It says they carried into exile a whole people. So they weren't just taking people here or there. They apparently went into a village or a city or a community or a people group or whatever it was and took all of them, wiped an entire people group out by selling them off into slavery. And so what is the lesson that we should learn from oracle number two? Is that human profit can never, ever take precedence over human welfare. It just can't. In fact, there's a massive biblical argument to be made that if you're in a place of human profit, it is specifically so that you can look out for others' human welfare. That the blessings of God are not to be hoarded, but to bless others. And if you read through the Bible and you don't get the idea that God cares about the poor, you're just not reading it. But especially an atrocity like this, this sort of social injustices. And so it's the kind of thing that we need to keep in mind. Business leaders, yeah, you could cut people's pay, pay them scraps and increase profit. But would that be the thing that honors God? And remember, our call as Christians is to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? To glorify God means we live in such a way that we bring, we, we bring to life or we manifest the attributes and qualities of God, the very character of God. And God is merciful and gracious and cares about those who are beneath. I mean, didn't he come to us when we were poor in spirit, the Bible says, which means literally spiritually bankrupt, he came to us that we might be saved. And so we have to consider those sorts of things. Maybe there's times as business leaders or even in households where we have the opportunity to either be a blessing to someone else or withhold that blessing so that we might increase in personal gain. And I would say we should think carefully about those things. What is it that we value? Number three, oracle number three, verse nine, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke punishment. Because they delivered, again, a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Um, this one's against Tyre. We'll talk about this in just one second, but I do want to point one other thing out. In each of these cases, the judgment God promises is an attack against the very stronghold of that land. So whether it be their king, whether it be their fortresses, these people are attacking the weak, and so God's saying, I'm coming for your strong. And so this is the case here. The people of Tyre or Phoenicia also sold an entire people group specifically to Edom. So we're talking about trafficking, which does happen still today. Um, trafficking definitely happens still today, whether it be sex trafficking, that sort of slave trade. Um, my daughter, or my daughter, my family and I actually attempted to adopt a young woman. We may end up talking about this this weekend as we talk about the, the principle of the adoption of God in um, Galatians. But um, we, we were in Uganda to adopt a young woman. She was uh, 16 at the day that we were there to actually adopt her. She's 19, I believe it is now. It's amazing if that's three years. But 
um, she herself had been, had run away from home, was in an abusive family. She was beaten. Her dad was drunk. It was this horrible situation. She ran away from home trying to find somewhere else to go. And the first people that were there to, come on, we'll take care of you, turned out to be actually sex traffickers themselves. Um, she was actually ran away from and then rescued by the church in Uganda. And that's even in just in Uganda. We're not talking about like they were kidnapping them and bringing them here. That was sex trafficking for other Ugandans. So that happens everywhere. You can talk with local law enforcement people that, about the trafficking and the things that happen, the different stings that happen up and down the I-5 corridor, even in this very area. It does exist. It does exist. But beyond just trafficking, there's another thing here that might be a little more applicable. Hopefully none of us are involved in or supportive of trafficking. Amen? Okay, but, but maybe there's one other thing that God calls out right here that we should think about a little bit more. It says uh, in verse 9, and it did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now, there was a treaty that it existed between them, and somewhere along the line, it became more profitable for them to break that treaty and to do what they want to increase profits. So, hey, my life's going to be, get better if I break this promise that I had over here and just sort of go do my own thing. Is there any aspect of our own lives that that might resonate with? Marriage, for example? you know what, I, I was young, I didn't know what I was doing, and she's holding me back, or he's not giving me what I thought I wanted. It would be better for me to break this covenant here and go here instead. But I think the lesson from Oracle number three, fidelity to your promises matters to God. I mean, the Bible is replete with places where it says, man, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Even regarding whether it's taking oaths in God's name, God cares. Why? Because we are a people who God has made promises to as well. And if word didn't matter, then how do we even cling to the very promises of God? We are all image bearers of God. And God says, listen, I want you. I take seriously the oaths and the promises you make. You think there's any diplomats in our world this day and age that could use an understanding like this? Like let your yea be yea and your no be no. Business promises. God cares about the covenants that we make. Oracle number four in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire on Taman, and it will destroy the strongholds of Basra. I worked on that one all day long, and I still butchered it. On Basra, we'll call it. So this is Edom. And Edom may not be a super familiar term to some of you, but the actual lineage that it comes from might. Anybody know who the original Edomite was? That's right, Esau. Whoever over there, you get extra famous Amos cookies next week. Esau is the first of the, of the uh, Edomites. So here we're talking about an actual blood brotherhood. Like Jacob and Esau were brothers. The Israelites, as you know, would be the lineage of Jacob. The Edomites would end up being, or also known as the Idumeans in other places, would be the descendants of Esau. So there's an actual brotherhood here. And so God seems to have particularly um, uh, disgust at the wrathful treatment the Edomites have used against the people of Israel. There was even a, a battle against Israel where the Edomites could have come in there and fought on behalf of their brotherhood, but they deemed it more profitable and more fruitful for themselves to jump on the side of, it, of Israel's enemy and actually fought against Israel, slaying by the sword some of their very own brothers, if you will. And this doesn't just happen once, by the way, with the Edomites. This happens all the time. This is a, a history that begins with Jacob and Esau and runs all the way through the Bible. You see this, the Edomites, the Idumeans, the descendants of Esau are a continual threat to Israel. You guys know the story of Esther? Do you remember there was this aid to the king that tries to convince the king we should kill all the Israelite people? His name was what? Anyone know? Haman. Haman was an Edomite. So here we see this plot to wipe them off the face of the earth. You can even fast forward a little bit longer. There's a famous guy by the name of Herod who was an Edomite. You might remember him because when Jesus was born, he tried to do what? Wipe all the babies out in the city of Bethlehem in hopes of ending the Messiah. 
So there's this continual thread in the, of the Edomites trying to attack and destroy God's people. And God says even here, I have had enough of this. You are even going into battle and extremely angry. There, there seems to be some extreme violence, some, some resentment maybe that seems to almost be like a, a leftover, if you will, from the very day of Jacob and Esau that seems to characterize the relationship between these two lands. And God is frustrated and done. Um, he seems to be extra displeased with this because the book of Obadiah deals with it also. In Obadiah chapter, verse 10, it says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. He's saying to them, look, even when they've attacked, you've stayed back and just watched and even laughed and gloated and boasted at the fact that your brothers, your own brothers, were experiencing misfortune. But he said, I'm warning you, don't laugh, don't gloat. Your time is coming. And so from oracle number four, I think one thing we can learn here that unmitigated hatred is absolutely inadmissible with God. Unmitigated hatred is inadmissible with God. You say, well, yeah, but, okay, maybe, maybe with our brothers, but ISIS we can hate, right? And, and Al-Qaeda we can hate, and we can hate all these things, and yet there's this Jewish carpenter that comes on the scene and begins teaching, and he says things like, love your enemies, and you say, love your enemies, this hatred, what are you talking about? I mean, think about it, like, even when our own military, which I support fully, and I hope you do, they are put in incredible difficult situations, often under-equipped, they are underpaid for what they do, and they protect our right to be right here, right now. I am beyond supportive of our military. But look, there's times when people in our military, in those places, have engaged in acts that are unbecoming of our military and are straight up illegal. You think of the prison, the photos that were taken of the Iraqi soldiers and all that stuff a few years ago? Well, well there's some that would look at those kind of things and, and just laugh. And be like, oh, it doesn't matter, that's our enemies, it's fine, they deserve it, look what they've done to us. I think God would say to us, I don't care what they're all doing, you're different. Be different. Be holy, be separate, and do not allow unmitigated hatred to control you the way it did with it seems to have done throughout the history of the Edomite people. Be different. Now we go into oracle number five and six, the last two, and these are particularly grievous because these aren't against people groups like soldiers or armies or anything like that. These two are actually against the helpless, those who can't defend themselves. Oracle number five begins in verse, uh, verse what did I say, verse uh, 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. So, so, so here's the situation here, and think, just, you might have to get really creative here, but think if there's anything this might remind you of in our culture. The, the Ammonite people here were so focused on enlarging the borders of their territory and taking more land and more wealth and more territory that they engaged in a horrific, barbaric terrorist act for two reasons. First, and you saw it, they're cutting open, literally, the stomachs of women that are pregnant. And, and why were they doing this? They were doing it for two reasons. Number one, because the idea was fear. Intimidation, coming in like terrorists do this. They want to strike fear. There's a reason ISIS releases the videos they release. They want to try to get people to be intimidated and be afraid. So this is part of it. But the other part of it is that if they can take all the pregnant women that are in that land and kill them, then what kind of army is that land going to have in the future? It becomes tough to rebel when you have no kids in the future, right? Now, is there anything, I mean, I, 
coming up blank at the moment, but if there's anything I can think of where we in our culture today might say, you know what, in order to increase my profits, I'll remove the live baby from within, and that way I'll be able to expand my borders and build my kingdom and stretch my own boundaries and build my own life, and I'll worry about kids later. <laughs> That's right. Um, if there's anyone in this room, I'm, I'm always careful when I say this because when you look at the stats regarding abortion, it's almost a certainty that someone in this room has probably had one. It just is. There's just that many. And, and so we need to say this, that God's mercy and grace covers even that. And that everyone has made horrific mistakes that they regret and that God's love will cover you and that he is a good God and he loves you. And so in no way, in no way do I say these things to join in with what I believe is very ungodly anger that unfortunately has been spewed out against those who have had abortions, are planning to have abortions, or places that do them. In no way do I say that. We just read we should, we should not hate our enemies even, right? We should love them. But at the same time, Christians, you have to care about this. Like, you have to care about this. It's so easy to watch the terrors that happen overseas and to forget that there's genocide going on in our own. Like we have to care about this. So I'm not saying we're going picketing tomorrow and going to start, you know, throwing bottles and Molotov cocktails at the abortion clinic. That would be illegal, Phil. We won't do that. But you have to care. I mean, the legal resources that God has given us, we should take advantage of because this is a horrific thing that in this case right here, God's for sure saying, I've had enough of this. We should be praying for unwed mothers and be supportive whatever ends we need to. And our, our church has had the privilege to do that, but I mean even us individually, whether it's donating to the Pregnancy Resource Center or to the Magdalene House, which is a shelter for teen moms or whatever the case may be. And we should be praying. We should be praying for a change in our nation because I wonder when the time might come where God would say to America, I've had enough. You're ripping open the stomachs to take out babies so that you can enlarge your borders and I'm done with it. Like, th we should care. We should care. The lesson from that I think is pretty obvious. Nothing moves God to punish as much as cruelty to the helpless. And you see that throughout the prophetic writings. God cares about the helpless, and so should we. And then oracle number six with Moab begins in chapter two, verse one. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. And so I will send fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerith and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and I will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. The last one is the people of Moab. Um, it's debatable which, what actually is going on. There's two possible options that the language there would lend itself to. Um, they were either raiding the tombs of those that they had defeated and looting bodies there and then grinding up the bones as a way of sort of mocking the people that they had defeated. Or they were guilty of burning alive heir apparent to the throne. So they would win a people, round up anyone that they could within any sort of royal family or families of influence, burn them, grind them, do whatever they could to destroy and really desecrate the bodies of the people rather than showing them any form of actual respect, care. Again, this goes back to this idea of the image of God. And the lesson to learn for sure from this is that there's no acceptable form of cruel vengeance. There just isn't. It has no justifiable place whatsoever in human behavior. And, and so to that end, should we care about the abortion clinics and all these kind of things? Yes. Should we blow them up? No. Ever. So these are the six oracles it's referred to as judgments against Israel's enemies. Now, what should we take away from all this really quickly? Number one, we don't have to look back into the pages of history to learn from all of this stuff. 
Like we, we just don't. Um, all we have to do is turn on the news and we can see that there is an infinite amount of violence and wickedness going on in the world today. ISIS, we've mentioned, we've talked about abortion, Al-Qaeda, all of these things. And I think one of the problems with the news networks that we have now and news radio and, well, well really just the level of violence that we're exposed to in general all along is we do get desensitized to it. Now, I remember when my mom used to say that growing up, you can't watch that violent movie, you're gonna be desensitized. And I was like, mom, that's dumb, that's dumb. She was right as she was about most things. Just don't tell her. Edit that from the recording if you would, Sam. But it does happen. And so I'll tell you something I did. Um, After listening to a thing that um, John Piper was talking about one time, and this might freak some of you guys out, but um, I watched one of the ISIS videos not long ago. The one with the 21 Coptic Christians that were caught and executed. And the reason that I did that after listening to a a thing, it was like a little podcast interview with John Piper, he was talking about that and he was talking also specifically, interestingly enough, about abortion. And he was saying, I think people just end up just by default relegating those terms off into something that, that over time, and it's not our fault, it just happens, but gets removed from the actual emotion and passion that should be attached to that. And so when he was asked, should a Christian actually look at that? He was like, I'm not gonna make that judgment for any one person because everyone's different, everyone's wired different, everyone receives things different. He goes, but, but I did and I needed to because I feel differently about it now than I did before. And, and, and so I watched that, I did. And I'll tell you, um, I feel differently about it now than I did before. Because like I knew it was in the videos, well, they've told us it was in the videos, but there was something different about seeing that. Now, does that mean that you have to see that to care against it? No, it doesn't. But what I am trying to say is I think that somehow we can get, especially us in America here, so far removed from a lot of the things that are going on that it almost doesn't seem real sometimes. Um, But it is. There is gross wickedness all over the world. And, 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 I mean, shoot, just look in the news. They found, like, what, two dead bodies in the last week? There was a shooting this week. Someone tried to shoot cops. I mean, even in our own neighborhood, we're seeing some of these things go on. There is tremendous wickedness. And the book of Amos tells us with resounding clarity that no matter what we see going on, no matter how violent it is, no matter how wicked it is, no matter how hopeless it is, God is clearly still in control, and he cares. Like, it matters to him. So to hear about what's going on with ISIS and think that they're just getting away with it and we can do nothing, look, our military is amazing and our role, if you want to call it protector of the free world or whatever it is they call America, it's awesome, but we're not the final authority. God is. And no one's getting away with nothing. God is sovereign over everything. He sees what's going on and he cares. And that should either bring comfort or fear or maybe both, depending on who you are and where you are right now. But that we know for sure. The second thing that I want to point out is because these are judgments against Israel's enemies, that means these are judgments against pagan people. So so think about this. God's not judging people that had God's law. He's not going to people who had the Bible and said, "I, I gave you all of this and you're still rebelling against me. He's going to pagan people that don't know anything about this particular God. They don't have any special revelation of who God is. They've not been exposed to worship of Yahweh. They don't know anything about the Ten Commandments. They're not followers of God. And yet, what do we see? God still speaks to them, and God still holds them accountable. It's because we are accountable to that which we've been given, but When man has been created in the image of God, there's a certain amount of morality, if you will, that has already been planted into men. That's one of the things that sets us apart from the very beginning. Man has a conscience, and because man is created in the image of God, man is created as a moral being. Romans 2, verse 14 says this, For when the Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. And so on one end, we could look at people, let's say young people that get raised up and indoctrinated into something like ISIS, for example, but the Bible actually tells us that even those people were given a conscience, and they are fully aware somewhere along the line. Now, that conscience may have long been seared at this particular point. 
but every man is guilty. It's not that, it's not that they're doing it because they didn't have the Bible, and if they had just been raised in a place where they had the Bible, they would be different. They're accountable to what they know, just as we are, which to us should translate to another little bit of fear and trepidation too, because we have the Bible, and we have God's Word. So, so we're accountable to an even greater degree. I don't want to give away too much about the book of Amos, but that's pretty much what the rest of the book's going to be about. So ignorance of the law, they say, is no excuse, and the same would be with us. The issue here, though, that's interesting, God doesn't call them out for their false worship, not once. Nowhere in there do they go, these pagans, they're following that God, and I'm done with it. These pagans, they're following that God, and I'm done with it. He he doesn't call out their beliefs. He calls out their behavior, their treachery, their exploitation, their disregard of human life. In other words, they're not being judged just because they're pagan. They're judged because they're human. They've been given a moral code and a conscience by God, and yet this is how they're responding to these things. In these passages, we see that there's teaching here, though, as well, about how God deals with patience that's well worth pointing out before we go. The first is this, God is patient. Because again, each one starts out by saying, your, um, your, your violations have, are endless. Three things, four things, which is supposed to imply five, six, seven, eight. The list goes on and on and on. God has been incredibly patient with all of them. So those lies that make, that, that people say, this is the God you follow, the God that would just come on and say, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna smash you and they didn't even have the Bible, don't buy it. God is incredibly gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. All they had to do was repent. That's all all they needed to do. God is incredibly patient. But at the same time, there's a British poet by the name of, uh, apparently his name's John. I didn't write down the last name. Anyway, British poet John, apparently really famous. He said this, beware the fury of a patient man. Beware the fury of a patient man. That fury that's built and built and built, and when that patience runs out, well, these lands and Israel as well will experience it. And the second thing is this. God is absolutely concerned with the behavior of nations. Like, we've tricked ourselves in this country to believing there's a separation between church and state. God never bought into that at all. And, and God particularly cares about how nations behave. The book of Romans actually tells us that the national governments that exist have been ordained by God and been raised up by God. Why? To protect and to push against evil. That's the whole point of government. It's to try to subdue evil to some degree, to protect people who are made in God's image. So when that same government that's been instituted by God then turns and becomes evil in and of itself, to actually participate in the very things that God designed it to, to, to prevent, God cares. There's no such thing as, God, as separation of church and state because God created state. God cares. And, and so all, all of these things, whether we should care, God cares about the government leaders that we have. That's why he tells us to pray for them. God cares about the things our government is involved. And so it's, again, another reminder that there's no secularization of our life. That's a, that's a modern term that means nothing to God. Like, we think God cares about Sunday, and God cares about Wednesday, and God cares that we pray over our meals, but the rest is sort of up to us till we get back to church. It's not true. He's involved in every single element of life. And the idea that something is secular and something is not, it it doesn't exist, that term means nothing to God. Jesus never used such phrases when he was here. God applies to, Jesus applies to every aspect of life and God cares about governments. And so what do we do with that with regards to our enemies? There was a great article online, and maybe I'll post it on our church blog that that should be read, but it it referred to the precatory prayers that David writes. You ever notice in the Psalms, like sometimes David's like, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, and and, uh, I delight in you, and your law is beautiful, and all these kind of things. And then sometimes he's like, that enemy, God, would you please just kill him, and kill him like bad kill him, like smush him, kill him. Like David really prayed some of that kind of stuff. It really was in there. And this article was saying, should we pray stuff like that with regards to ISIS? Should we do that? And the answer, I'll give you the summary, you can read it later. Um, the, the first prayer and the best prayer 
is that in a group like ISIS or a group like Al-Qaeda, a terrorist organization like that, that God would do with one of those terrorists like he did with a terrorist in the New Testament that we now refer to as Paul. A guy who was rounding up Christians for the express purpose of killing them just like the ISIS people are doing to Christians in all those other areas. But one of them, God sovereignly took down and he became a missionary for justice. And so that'd be, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? What if God took down the leader of ISIS the way he did Paul? Why can't he? He could. Maybe we don't have enough faith. I don't know. But let's pray that. And then after that, let's pray God smushes him. I'm serious. <laughs> because mercy and truth uphold the throne. And we love the mercy part. I, I got to meet with a young man just last year that was wanting to go into the military. He is now in the military, so you can understand how I talked to him. But uh, uh, he, he's a drone pilot. And someone had gotten uh, into his ear and was like, how can you do that as a Christian? Who knows who you're going to be bombing? And you don't know all these kinds of things. And, and what, I, what I talked to him about is mercy and truth uphold the throne. Uh, on one hand, God is a very merciful, loving, gracious, compassionate God. And that's the part that gets all the press, Right? That's the part that we, the church, talk about the most. That's what Thomas Kincaid painted. That's all those things. That's the part of God. But, but you know what else actually manifests the very character of God? Is justice. And so for us to pray that God would manifest his character by smushing those that are killing our brothers and sisters overseas, hacking their heads off and gloating over it, I am totally down with that prayer. And I think we all should be. God cares about what nations are doing. God cares when the helpless are beaten and afflicted and murdered. And God cares. He, he couldn't be a loving God and let that happen to his children and not care. And then people go, then why are they getting away with it? Well, Amos is proving to us, and it will as we continue on, no matter what it looks like, they're not. They're not getting away with it. God is sovereign. And at the very least, there's coming a day when Jesus will be here with a sword. And it's going to be violent and glorious when the enemies of God are put down. So in closing, I want to close with this. So imagine you're Amos. You come into the area of Israel. No, imagine you're in the kingdom of northern Israel and this prophet shows up. You've heard from prophets before. You've heard about prophets before. Oh, no. Here comes one of these guys to tell us all the things that we're doing wrong. God's judgment's coming. He hates us. We need to repent right now and all this stuff. Um, and I hope he doesn't get like Elijah and like, or excuse me, Isaiah and lay around naked for three years or some of those kind of things. But there's going to be all sorts of, who knows what this prophet's going to do. And he comes in and he says, all right, I have something I want to say. God's judgment is coming against the Edomites. You'd be like, no, hang on, hon, let's listen to this guy. I like this guy, man. Are you running for office? Because I'll vote for you. Like, people would love this. And then the Ammonites, God is going to destroy the Ammonites. Yeah. And it goes on and on and on through all these different people. And by, by the time number six, I would imagine there's like cheers going on and it's like some sort of convention rally where every other word is woo, cheers and all this kind of stuff. But they're being set up. They're being totally set up. Not, not that those things aren't true and God's going to do them. He is, he does, it is. But Jesus would teach this in Matthew 7. Don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And so as you're going to see, I'm setting this up for next week, but as you're going to see, God has gone through. Amos, by God speaking through Amos has gone through and laid out these atrocities that are going on. And, and, and he's saying, isn't this horrible? And, and then isn't this wrong? And what he's doing is he's calling together a moral code that all of the Israelites agree with. He's saying, don't you think they should be judged? Yeah. Don't you think they should be judged because they did this and this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so easy to be on board when it's judgment against our enemies. But then when that same magnifying glass gets turned on us, it gets a whole lot harder. And so what's just happened is not only has judgment been pronounced, but an entire, uh, if you will, moral compass that's going to describe. And by the way, what about you? It's, it's like Samuel and David. Remember that? Or was it Nathan? I'm sorry. It's Nathan. Nathan and David. 
Nathan comes to David, hey, there's this guy, he had all these sheep, he had all this stuff, but he looked down at this one other guy, just had this one sheep, and he took it, remember that whole story? And David's like, that is wrong, we're gonna kill that guy, man, we're gonna get him, because his moral compass, his inner, you know, this idea, I know what's right and I know what's wrong, has been activated. And so David's like, yeah, let's get him, let's get him. And then what does he say? David, you're the man. But that's next week. Let's stand and pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you do care what goes on in every aspect of our lives, Father. I thank you that you are wise and sovereign beyond all comprehension, Lord, and you know how all things play out. I thank you, Lord, that we do have another word of prophecy in this book that shows us that no matter how bad things might be in any area of our life or in this world around us, you win. Mercy and truth uphold your throne, and your throne will last forever. So God, we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and rid us of the horrors in the world around us and the sins and horrors within our own self. But God, until this day, I pray, Lord, that we would grow in compassion, grow in mercy, that we would not be prone to the idolatry and the wickedness that we see here and that area, areas, Lord, of, of this in our own lives, you would convict them and by your grace, you would change us. Lord, I pray for our nation, from its leaders to the abortion clinics we've spoken of, Lord, I pray the same thing that they prayed, Lord, during those civil rights uh, rallies in the day as they quoted this same book, Lord, may justice roll like a river. May you purify this land. Lord, may you deal with the wickedness that's there. May your nation repent and turn to you. And I pray, God, that Christians in this land would be different, would stand apart, and would be not only vessels for mercy, but would stand for truth as well. But God, I'm so thankful we can put our entire hope in you, knowing that you are sovereign over all things, that you are in control of all things, and we can trust in you, because you never go back on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you Sunday morning.